All right, you're ready to go. If you guys have your Bibles, Acts chapter 9. So if some of you have been no doubt following with us through from our beginnings in the book of Acts. We've watched the result of the outpouring of the baptism with the filling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the early church. We've watched the boldness and the power that it produced in men like Peter and Philip and Stephen as we've been going through. Uh, We've been reading these stories, really this history. These are real people that lived in real time, in a real place on planet earth, and served the real and living God. And we get to learn from and glean from their experiences and then apply those things and see how they apply to our very lives. We were introduced to Saul of Tarsus, this man who was a uh, terrorist in the, in the way we would understand terrorists. He was destroying Christian homes, going into Christian meetings and dragging people off, men and women, and separating families. And he was there when Stephen was murdered or martyred, when he was stoned to death. And uh, just like the words used to describe him, that he was wreaking havoc is a word that's used to describe a wild animal tearing up its prey, or the interesting thing I learned this week was pigs destroying a vineyard. So if you've ever seen pigs that are out rooting up the ground, man, they are destructive. And so that's the kind of destruction that Saul of Tarsus was having in the church. This would be the guy that if you had to pick somebody who would never be saved, there's no way, this guy is so far from God. I mean, remember, he was religious, but he was persecuting anybody that believed in Jesus. This is a guy who would never become a believer in Jesus. But maybe you remember when you were growing up, if you were in my generation, I was the BMX bike generation with the mag wheels, and we were the the generation right before people figured out you should wear helmets, which explains a lot about our generation. And we built stuff in the garage because you couldn't buy plastic ramps at the store. So you had to make them out of wood and nails and whatever you could find in your neighbor's dad's garage or whatever. And then we'd get on our bikes and we'd ride them as fast as we could. And we'd hop ramps up steps and down steps and wherever. And it's amazing any of us lived into adulthood. But one of the things we loved to do was get on that bike and ride as fast as we could and hit the brakes as hard as we could and see how long of a skid mark we could leave. Do you remember doing that? Oh, and then you'd compare who could skid farther. I was having that conversation with someone this week and thinking back to those days and then thinking about the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus and the skid marks that were left outside of Damascus as he was coming in ready to persecute the church and God shines a light brighter than the noonday sun and he's blinded by that. He has to be led in by the hand. There he meets Jesus face to face There he is converted. There he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? There the skid marks and he changes directions and he runs as fast as he can in the opposite direction. And that's where we pick up our story in chapter 9, verse 20. After he's saved, he spends some time in Damascus. Verse 19, you can read, says, When he had received food, he had been fasting for three days. He was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And we'll pick up in verse 20, and we read, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? I mean, they are amazed because of the change they've seen the life 
of Saul of Tarsus. So much so that they're still not even sure it's really real. And maybe you've known somebody, maybe you've been challenged by somebody who then becomes a Christian. They've lived a godless life, a hurtful life. They've left a trail of destruction. Then they get saved and you're going, I'm not so sure about that. Because we've seen false conversions too. We've seen emotionally based conversions that someone came up at the end of service and there's really no change in their life. And then we're watching to see, does the change last? Because maybe there's a change that lasts for a short time, but then it doesn't really last. And you go, I'm not sure what to make of that. Were they saved? Were they not saved? What's the deal with that? With the Apostle Paul, there's no question. This guy is going to write to Timothy at the end of his life and say, I have run my race with endurance. I finished my course. And now there is laid up for me a crown. So there's no doubt. Peter would say to the church, hey, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. There should be nobody looking at your life and saying, well, you know, I'm not sure. I know they were a a bad dude before they got into church. Now they're in church, but now they're sort of living a dual life. We're not sure what to make of that. With Saul of Tarsus, there was no question. The challenge, the challenge for Saul of Tarsus is that he was making a name and a reputation for himself in Judaism. He was a religious guy. This was not a guy without religion, but his religion had turned him into a murderer. And that's what he thought was right to do to these Christians. Not good enough just to let them alone and let them worship their Jesus. We know that they're wrong, he might say, but we'll do our thing. No, he was so internally moved, distressed, troubled, that he felt it his duty to God to kill them. And so he was very ambitious, a very ambitious guy, and had really been promoting and being promoted within Judaism. Now that he's saved, he turns around 180 degrees and he's going the other direction, and he may have that same attitude of now I'm going to be ambitious, and he does, for Christ. And that's not a bad thing, is it? No, it's not a bad thing. I think you should be ambitious for Christ. But the challenge is, one of the things God has to do with his servants, and you see this over and over and over again. I'll give you some examples as we get through this passage. Is that every time God wants to use someone powerfully, he has to first humble them deeply. Just write that down and remember that. Every time God wants to use someone powerfully, he first has to humble them deeply. And there's a number of reasons for that, for your benefit, for God's benefit. Not that God needs anything, but... The challenge is if you run around with God's power taking credit for anything, everything, people think you're the one that's doing it. And that misleads people. They think you have the power when it's really God. So we'll talk about some of that as we go through. Whenever God wants to use someone in that extraordinary way, powerfully, he first has to humble them deeply. Saul, out of the starting gate, look at verse 20, it says immediately. Immediately he preached to Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. He doesn't take discipleship classes in Damascus. He doesn't go through their you know, church welcome program. He doesn't go to seminary right away. He tells us he didn't even confer. He didn't go down to Jerusalem. We don't have Peter and John coming up to lay hands on him. Ananias, some nobody apostle in Damascus, God uses to lay hands on him, filled with the Spirit. And now he starts immediately preaching. I don't know where you've come from. I don't know what your background is, but Saul did not let his past derail him from doing what God wanted him to do in the future. And sometimes people will come hard at you because they say, well, who are you to start teaching Bible study? Well, who are you to start serving in church? I know where you were three weeks ago. 
I know where you were a year ago. And, and Satan tries to ride in on that. Don't listen to it. Saul of Tarsus immediately began to preach the Christ in the synagogues. So he goes, this is his plan. He's familiar with the synagogues. He goes into Damascus. That's where he is. He comes into the synagogue. And you can imagine the picture. He's like a celebrity. It's not every day that the synagogue in Damascus has the opportunity to host a well-known Pharisee from Jerusalem who studied under the most excellent teacher. So as he comes into the synagogue, I'm sure they're well aware, oh, this is Saul of Tarsus, we know him. And they give him the primary seat in the synagogue and they give him the scrolls and he gets the opportunity to teach that day, the Bible study. And they're all waiting for him to slam Christians. And instead, he starts to teach that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, the Son of God is a, a term regarding Jesus being their Savior, the Messiah, the one who was from the lineage of David. If you think about it, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And he asked his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, in that moment of clarity, says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, way to go, Peter. You're right on. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church. You know the story. So there's a place where Peter himself says, hey, you're the Christ the Son of the living God. When Jesus was on trial in front of the high priest, the high priest asks him, so are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? That's the question they're asking him. And he says, it is as you say in the Gospel of Matthew. It's as you say. So there he makes a claim to be the Son of God. And all through, whether it's the Psalms or some other places in the Bible, you can read this term. This, by the way, is the only place this term for Jesus is used in the whole book of Acts, right here. This was a famous, a well-known way that Paul would refer to him. But notice one more thing before we move on. His sermon topic didn't ultimately come back to his experience on the Damascus Road. He didn't go there talking about himself and his experience. His experience was an excellent experience to have, not like many of our experiences. You know, I saw the light moment. And certainly he could have gotten focused on his experience and telling everybody about his experience. And he does share that at times. But look, ultimately, whatever experience you've had, it must come back to the discussion of the preaching about, the talking about Christ. Because he's at the core of everything, not your experience. I've seen people in church, they have a great experience, and all they do is talk about their experience all the time. And all they do is tell people about their experience. And then they're trying to find new experience because the old experience got old and now I need a new experience. And there's nothing wrong. We should have an experiential faith. But experience isn't the root of our faith. It's truth. And so when Paul or Saul goes into the synagogue, he's not preaching about them having a Damascus Road experience. No, no, just go out of the gate and come in again. Okay, didn't have, no, go out, come in again. no can't produce that. It was produced by God. So you can't preach experience. You preach truth. And I pray that you experience God's truth in your life. But he preached the Christ. And that's what I'm here to tell you today. Everything we do, everything we say comes back not to Calvary Chapel, not to Pastor Steve, and not to you and whatever experiences you've had, comes back to Jesus. And the fact that he is the Son of God, he is the Savior of the world, and he's the Savior of, of every individual personally who will put their trust in him. Amen. They were amazed at this conversion. Look at verse 22. 
instead of being disturbed by it, instead of being uh, distracted by it, verse 22 says he just increased all the more in strength. I love people like that. The more you tell them they can't, the more they can. They just will not be deterred. And God needs people like that. Because if we're not sure, if we're kind of marginal, if we're on the edge and someone says something bad or someone questions, it can totally like rip you apart. It can totally, you know, destroy you emotionally. Not Saul of Tarsus. The more people said, hey, you know, we're not sure about you. We're questioning your conversion. Hey, it just made him all the more. Just, again, be diligent to do everything to make your calling and election sure. If you're ever accused of being a Christian, there should be enough evidence to convict you. And look what he was doing. He was gaining more strength, and he was confounding the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving, circle that word, pay attention, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. The word proving means to knit together. To knit together, it's also used for to teach. When someone teaches you, when someone's really teaching you, they're not just telling you what you're supposed to memorize. That's not teaching. Teaching is helping you to understand how the pieces fit together. Knitting things together. So he was stirring up their minds in the synagogue by showing them, here's the Old Testament evidence. Here's Genesis chapter 21 or 22. And here's Isaiah 53. And here's Daniel. And here's these prophecies. And he's showing along the way, here's the prophecy and here's Christ. And he's knitting them together, Jesus with the Old Testament. And their minds are getting blown by this. Verse 23 begins with, now after many days were passed. The question is, how many days are we talking? Well, many scholars believe that into this little space between verse 22 and verse 23 is actually a period of about three years. How do you know that? Well, you have to read Paul's letter to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul writes to the church in Galatia that after he was at Damascus, he went to Arabia for a period of time, and then he came back to Damascus and after three years went to Jerusalem. So Luke doesn't tell us that here. He just says after many days. Paul tells us that he went and spent some time in Arabia. Now that is not just Saudi Arabia or the Arabian Peninsula. That's the Nabataean kingdom that's sort of on the east side of the Jordan River, that area. So he didn't necessarily have to go really far to do that, but he just got away for a personal retreat, his own little Jesus seminary in the desert. Now, he wasn't having to, to convince himself that Jesus was the Son of God. He knew that. What he's doing is he is now reading all of the passages he studied in Torah school, and he's now understanding them in light of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Of that truth is now changing everything he understood about his life, about the Bible that he studied, about the, the ancient unholy scriptures that he loved. He's learning that, and he's coming to grips with the fact that he's not saved by the law. He's not saved by the rules. And he's seeing this as he goes through. He's learning that God loves the Gentiles, the non-Jews. He's reading that in Isaiah. And all of these things come crashing in on his brain. That's how it is when you get saved. It's like, all of a sudden, the world is different. You can't see things the same when you recognize and you acknowledge that Jesus is real, that he is God, and that he died for my sins, which means I had them. Because he died for the whole world, that means the whole world needed him to die. 
and he helps me reinterpret my whole life. And so at the end of those skid marks is a 180 and a moving off in a new direction. And there's learning involved. That's why it's equated to being born again. Because when you are born as a baby, it's like this blank slate and you just get started and everything is new. It's a whole different life than inside the womb, you know? Everything was constrained and constricted. And I mean, I don't remember personally, but I'm assuming it was dark. And you thought when you were in, in utero, you thought that was, that was it. That was the best it would ever be. You know, it's comfortable, it's warm, I'm safe. But then you're born into this whole new world. You go, whoa, when do I eat? That's the first thing that comes to mind. And how long can I annoy my parents until I'm about 18? 20, 25, 30. Do I hear 35, any parents? <laughs> so being born again, and you've got to learn. You've got to learn this new life. And so Jesus is, is ministering to him there. And so now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now the very persecution he spearheaded was now the persecution that was targeting him. The Jews he had aroused to kill Christians are now coming after him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. So Saul's looking over his shoulder wherever he has to go. He's, his life is in danger. He doesn't get any rest. He's always uh, knowing that there's a plot against him. So here's what he says. Here's what's happened. Then the disciples, verse 25, took him by night under the cover of darkness, and let him down through the wall in a large basket. So he makes his escape. He can't go through the city gates. Why? Because they're guarding them, looking for him. He's a marked man. His days are numbered. So he has to escape over the wall in a basket. Some translations say a hamper, similar to, and the same word is used of the basket of excess loaves and fish that were brought up after the feeding of the 5,000. They brought them up in 12 large baskets. So it's a man-sized basket, but a basket nonetheless. So normally we would just read over this and go, eh, let down in a basket. He had to escape. No big deal. I mean, we know that in his later life, there are times when he has run out of a city. He got stoned, and I don't mean that in the drug sense. He got stoned with stones. They drag him out of the city. They leave him for dead. He wakes up comes to and goes back into the city. He doesn't run away. So we see both of these things in his life, but here we just read, yeah, okay, he, uh, he escaped. He had some friends. They let him down. He escapes. But I want to pause here because I, I don't want to let the moment pass. I've asked you to mark 2 Corinthians 11 because there's a tremendous truth that becomes clear for Saul of Tarsus. He records this event at an interesting place an interesting time in the life of his ministry. He's ministering to the Corinthian church. This is a, a church that he has a relationship with. He's having to defend his apostleship. They are comparing him to these other false apostles who are bragging about themselves and bragging about the visions they've had and bragging about their strengths. And so he's having to defend himself and teach them some things about a servant of Christ. So that's where we pick up here. He gives a little bit of his resume in chapter 11, verse 22. He doesn't want to do it, but he's got to boast. Watch what he boasts about. And remember as we read this, that when God called Saul, 
He told him he would be a minister to the Gentiles and to the Jews and to kings, and I will show him how many things he must suffer. All right, well, now you have the list. Verse 22, he says, are they Hebrews? Speaking of these false apostles, yeah, so am I. Are they Israelites? Yeah, me too. Are they the seed of Abraham? Are they from Abraham's descendants? Yeah, me too. Are they ministers of Christ? And this is where he stops. That's the question. They might be all these Jewish things, but are they ministers of Christ? And then he says, I speak as a fool, I am more. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to boast. But here is his resume for ministry. In labors, more abundant than them is the indication. In stripes, above measure. Stripes meaning he would hit with the, the cat of nine tails. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. That sounds like a tough ministry. Anybody want to sign up? We're, we're going to have a you know, training session for this ministry if anybody's interested. In, no, no, I mean, I'd have been done there, quite possibly. It's one thing to serve the Lord when everything's going well, but you really tell a lot about a person and their calling if they stick with it through the hard times. I mean, it's easy when everything's exciting and the church is growing and things are powerful and your Bible study's doing well or your ministry's prospering and, and, and things are moving. Hey, that's great. Easy to serve the Lord. Oh, I love God, man. He's doing great, really prospering me. But then when things don't go so well, where's God? What's he doing? Oh, why is he doing this to me? What did I do to deserve this? And we begin to ask all the questions, certainly questions Paul would have had to deal with as he's listing out these things. Anybody in here gone through those things? Most of us have not. But that list doesn't stop there. Verse 24, from the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Again, that's the cat of nine tails, just like Jesus before his crucifixion was beaten with the lick turn. So I was beaten five. Now, once, once I'd be like, I'm finding a new job. I'm going back to school, whatever it is, five times. You want to talk about a tough guy. Five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Now, right away I'm going, I am not hanging out with this guy. Like, we are not going to be friends because everywhere you go, there's trouble. Uh, shipwrecked, but you guys know my swimming testimony. I am one shipwreck for me a day, night, and I wouldn't take that long. 30 minutes and I'm done. If that's even being generous. I'm at the bottom of the ocean. But he, he continues. Journeys often. Perils of waters. Perils of robbers. Perils of my own countrymen. Perils of the Gentiles or the non-Jews. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. Perils here. Perils there. Perils everywhere. A guy couldn't get any, any rest in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. So there's his resume. There's his list. You think you're serving the Lord. Have you served him through this? Have you endured these things? You want to say, I'm not an apostle of Christ. After all, I've gone through for my Lord. And you're going to question whether or not I'm an apostle. You want to talk about hurtful things. And then he says, verse 28, little insight into a pastor's heart. He says, besides the other things, well, that's not it. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. 
So more than the stripes and the shipwreck and the peril and this being stoned to death, more than all of those things, he says, those are things that happen here and there over the course of time. But every day, my mind is burdened with the people in the churches. Are they getting along? Are they walking with the Lord? What's the next crisis that's happening? How can I help? He writes letter after letter to minister to them in their difficulties. And a, a pastor, a pastor, a pastor never rests from thinking about people. And you can have Sabbath day, you can call it what you want, but the brain never takes a Sabbath when you're a shepherd caring for people. That's the challenge of being in ministry is you got your own life. You know, your car breaks down, the cat goes to the bathroom on the rug, you know, all, you know whatever it happens in your life, that's just my life. You know my love for cats. But it's just life, right? Life is happening. But on top of that, we've got hundreds of people that we care deeply about. And thinking about it, and we get the emails and the prayer requests and the messages, and those things burden a mind, a life, a heart. And Paul says, all that other stuff is fine, but then daily, my and he doesn't just say concern, he says, my deep concern for all the churches. He says, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? So he's getting to a point here, and we're getting to our point. Verse 30 says, if I must boast, and that's what he's, he's having to do. So if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God of, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, here's where we are, folks. Verse 32, in Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, that's a group of soldiers, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. So interesting place for that story to come back up, isn't it? Evidently, the story left a lasting impression in Paul's mind because here when he has to boast, and he says, hey, I'm going to boast not about all my capabilities and all my strengths and all that I've done and all my accolades and all the letters after my name. He says, if I'm going to boast, it's going to be about my weaknesses. And, and here's the first one I remember from my ministry. I was just getting started in ministry, just getting rolling, and I was threatened here, and I was threatened in Damascus. And you know what? They had to let me down over the wall in a stinking basket like trash. And that's how I made my escape. Now, in the Roman army, there was an award, a crown, for being the first one up the wall. When you were sieging a city, you know, all the soldiers would run at the wall and arrows are flying. And if you were the first soldier to make to the wall and plant the flag, the, the Roman flag there, then you would get a gold crown. And it had to do with being the first one up the wall. And I can only imagine... Saul, this powerful guy who had come from Judaism, who was killing people, taking names, and, and now he's been reduced and humiliated to being let down over the wall in a basket. And he remembers that. And he doesn't say it was awful. He says it was really good. Matter of fact, he's going to go on to say, I'd rather take pleasure in my infirmities. Now, again, I remember growing up, my parents were camp counselors at a camp up in Pennsylvania. And when you got sick, you went to this little place called the infirmary. The infirmary. So the in, to an infirmity is a sickness or a weakness. And it means to be without strength. And when you're sick, you're without strength. And so they go hand in hand. But he says, if I'm going to boast, this is what I'm going to boast about. And that is so opposite of me. 
When I first got married, when my wife and I met, we met at a gym, and I had been a competitive powerlifter, and I would basically built my whole life on being strong. And, you know, guys, we measure ourselves against each other. We're measuring each other up. As soon as we meet ladies, you do the same thing. And we measure ourselves up, and we want to somehow be able to place ourselves above others. We want, to, we want to promote our strength. Maybe you have a resume. What's on your resume? Your resume isn't going to say, well, you know, can't keep a job. Lost the last two. I'm a terrible worker. Uh, I just I get things wrong all the time. That's not what you're going to put on your resume. So we get married, and we start to have kids, and then kids like to go to amusement parks. And here I am, this, you know, 27, 28-year-old powerlifter, and the kids go to the amusement park, and what's the ride they want to go on? They want to go on, like, the Caterpillar roller coaster. And it's really hard to look cool on the Caterpillar roller coaster. Like, you know, you know get on the roller coaster, and there you are, your knees are up by your ears, and you're just trying to, like, you know, people are walking by, and you're like, yeah, I'm not cool. I'm, I'm not cool. You see, you got to get over that stuff, right? To be a dad, you got to get over those things. you got to get over yourself. Because we tend to have this inflated version of ourselves. And what did I tell you before? When God wants to use someone powerfully, he has to first humble them deeply. I know you guys know my thoughts on these things, but, but this is where we live. We live in Facebook world. And so my question is, when's the last time, ladies, ladies, when's the last time you put your Facebook post up there and it had a picture of like, your burnt chicken, and you said, yeah, made dinner for the family tonight, burnt it all, we're eating out. That's not typically what we put on Facebook. We put, oh, here's the beautiful angelic dinner I made for my family, and look, everything is perfect, because that's how we portray ourselves. That's what we want other people to see, the danger of that. And Paul tells you and I in another place in Scripture, he says, let's not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Hmm, how about that, folks? Let's just be real about the fact that we all elevate ourselves in the eyes of others. Then the problem is we have to live up to the reputation we've created. So being humble just means to have an accurate representation and understanding of yourself. No more, no less. You can be honest about who you are. Mother Teresa said that uh, when you're humble, nothing can touch you, neither success nor failure when you succeed, doesn't inflate you. And the criticism when you fail doesn't discourage you because you're humble. You have an accurate understanding and representation of yourself. And so when God works in a person's life, I look at the Apostle Paul, the danger of him moving from selfish ambition here to selfish ambition there without ever passing through the gate of humility, the gate of being humiliated. Think about the last time you felt humiliated. Think about the last time you really felt humiliated and how much you hated the person that did that to you. Sometimes I'll meet someone in the grocery store or in a restaurant and they'll say, hey, you're Pastor Steve, aren't you? And immediately it's like, yeah, yeah, Pastor Steve. You got toilet paper on your shoe. Oh, man. Really? But those are the, because we start to get elevated, right? But think about this in Scripture. Think about Joseph. In the Old Testament, think about Joseph. He knew what he was supposed to be. He had the dreams, all his brothers bowing down to him. But before he actually could live that, and it did happen, he had to pass through the gate of being humiliated, being made low. So he's sold into slavery. 
Then he's bought there in Egypt, and he's a slave in the house, and he's lied about. He's put in prison, and he's left there for two years, and it's out of there. It's out of the prison in Egypt that he's exalted to power. Think about Jonah. Jonah is used, his simple sermon is used to spark one of the greatest revivals in history in in Nineveh, the Assyrian Empire. And he knew God was calling him. He didn't want to go there. So he goes, where? Down to Joppa. Pay attention to those words. He goes down to Joppa. Then he gets on a ship and he goes down into the hull of the ship. And they figure out that there's something wrong and that he's to blame. They throw him overboard and he goes down below the ship into the ocean. And then he gets swallowed up by a great fish. And where does he go from there, gang? He goes down into the belly of the fish. And it's from there that he prays. It's from there that he's humbled. And it's from there that he gets spit back out onto the beach and preaches his sermon in Nineveh. We can go on and on, but why don't we talk about Jesus for a minute? Jesus, who made himself of no reputation, who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was equal with God. Steps into humanity. Talk about a step down from heaven to humanity. There's a huge step down. Then not just living in a palace, but then becoming a servant. Not just becoming a servant, but being obedient even unto death. Not just any death, but the death of a cross, which is the lowest possible, most humiliating death anybody could suffer. And it's from there that we learn that someday in his name, every knee will bow. No one has been higher than him, and no one has fallen farther in humiliation and humbling and to be glorified greater than Christ. That's why to him be the glory and the honor forever and ever. Not to me or to you. Our humiliation, little steps, right? I think about David. David is, is walking along the, the banks and, and this guy is hurling stones at him and calling him and cursing him. Like, man, when's the last time someone cursed you out? How did it make you feel? Humiliated, especially if it was in front of people you love. It was in front of your family. And so these, this guy is cursing and kicking dust and throwing stones at David. And Joab, his general, says, eh, should I go cut his head off? Yeah, like, yeah, you know, go take his head off? Because yeah, that's what you'd like to do, right? I mean, the mouth is part of that, right? So just, whack, and it's done. And David says, no, leave him alone and let him curse. How do I know maybe God will bless us for his cursing? Hey, maybe in your humiliation, God is looking to bless you, to exalt you in that. So that's why he says, I would gladly boast in my infirmities. When someone speaks to you and they're vulnerable, when someone relates to you their weaknesses, don't you find it easier to connect with them? Don't you find it like, oh, phew, you know, please do us all a favor and share your weaknesses on Facebook because then we all have the right to be human too. Then we don't feel like we got to live up to you. Look, in church, we just have to be honest that we're not we're not as great as our Facebook page. We're not as great as our resume. We're just really not all that great after all. And when God humbles you, and when you find yourself humiliated, thank God and boast about that. Why? Because you've just been reminded that you're human like all the rest of us. And that is a beautiful thing. You know what that produces? That produces people who minister with grace. The Apostle Paul becomes the minister of what? The Apostle of Grace. This guy gets grace. I'm not going to read any more from there. Let's go back to Acts. If you want to, in your personal time, 
take a moment and read chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. He elaborates and kind of closes that by saying he would take pleasure in infirmities, and in fact, that it's when he is weak, that's when he is strong. See, I think that when I'm weak, I'm weak, and when I'm strong, I'm strong. I mean, that, it's not rocket science. I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm strong, I'm strong. In God's kingdom, it's the opposite. Because the strength of God is only ever brought to its fullness through human weakness. So when we spend all of our time boasting about how strong we are, God says, all right, Steve, go to it. Let's see how you do it. And then we just make a mess of it. This is not going to come as a surprise to many of you that have been around here for a while, but I have no idea what I'm doing. You know, when I got into ministry, it was like, Steve, just teach the Bible. Okay, I, I can, I'm, I'll, I'll work on that. And that is something that I, I love. I can wrap my head around that. But what God would do, you know, to see two services in a church, but I, I can just tell you personally that I feel like, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, maybe it's time for someone else to pastor the church. I mean, these are the thoughts I have because I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And then God reminds me that that's exactly where I want you to be because then you'll ask me to help you. And that's what I've been waiting for all along because it's not by your might or by your power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And so we're the strongest when we're the weakest, but the challenge is we never really want to be in a place of weakness because we feel too vulnerable. But it's when we're vulnerable and when we're humble that the power of God is brought to its fullness in our lives. Amen. Now, don't fake it. Don't go around, oh, I'm no good. I'm a nobody. We don't like a bunch of Eeyores around here. That's not what we're looking for. But get in over your head for the Lord a little here and there. Get involved in something that the Lord is calling you to. Don't wait for you to be strong enough to do it. Well, I'll come to church or I'll start serving the Lord when I'm stronger. Start now because when you're stronger, you'll be useless. You're the most useful when you're the most dependent. And that's the daring part of even a growing ministry. It's like when we started out, we had nothing and it was beautiful. And now we have stuff and it's easy to begin to depend on our building, to depend on our stuff, to depend on our programs or whatever it might be. And Lord, help us from that. Say amen to that. Lord, help us from that. It's still the same power of Christ, the same Spirit of God that was at work 12 years ago is the same Spirit of God. We do the same thing we always do. Okay, back to Acts chapter 9. I love that. Can you tell I love that passage? These are the things that minister to my heart. Let down in a basket. What a letdown. So the question then comes to my mind is, okay, he's been let down in a basket. He's been humiliated. Does he keep going? Because a lot of times after someone gets humiliated or they feel like they've been wronged or they've been persecuted, they just give up. Well, look at verse 26. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples like they were a gang or something. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. So no doubt. I mean, this is where the persecution started. This is where he had a reputation like, you know, I'm not sure about that. When Paul came into the church, people grabbed their children and hid. Because they didn't know what. Maybe he's just, maybe it's a plot. Maybe he's just trying to dupe us so he can get us. So they don't trust him. They don't believe him. But Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas vouched for him, said church, said disciples, said Peter, I think this guy's the real deal. I mean, he's had a conversion. He told me the story, and he's preaching with power. I mean, something 
is different. He's not just playing games. This guy's the real deal. I think we should give him a chance. And I love when people like you come alongside of people that are coming into the church and share Christ with them and walk with them and say, you know what? Let me just come alongside of you and help you gain acceptance from other people. I've seen what the Lord is doing. Sometimes we come alongside and go, I'm not sure. Like, I don't see any fruit. And that's, that's a real deal too. You can always tell a tree by its fruit. But sometimes you see some fruit happen. It's small, it's little, but you go, you know what? Let's nurture that. Let's bring you in. And that's the kind of guy Barnabas was. And he takes Paul and he brings him in and he declared to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road, that he'd spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. That, by the way, is the proof of the Spirit of God filling his life. He was, verse 28, he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, what's the proof of the baptism with, the filling with the Holy Spirit? It is the, um, the boldness of a life, the boldness of an assurance in the heart that allows you the freedom to speak freely about the one whom you love, the one who loved you, Jesus. How can you hold? When you're in love, man, you can't stop talking about that person. When you're filled with love for that person, you just, no one can, you're at work and everybody's like, oh, shut up already about the thing. We get tired of listening to you. But then when it comes to Christ, like, I don't know if I should talk about it. What a difference, huh? And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists or the Greek speaking Jews, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So he's got to hit the road once again. What a life, huh? What an early ministry. I wonder how many of us would have endured through those kind of things. Now, where's Tarsus? That's to the north. That's his home city. He's, they're sending him home. Paul, you're too hot to handle. I mean, we love you and we believe you, but you got to go because you're too hot to handle. Now, he does share a story. Just hang with me a few more minutes. Acts 22, it turns out, Paul shares this, that he was actually praying at the temple, and the Lord said, Saul, they're not going to receive your testimony. you got to get out of there. you got to leave Jerusalem. And he was like, wait a second, Lord. This is a perfect place for, for me to share my testimony. I mean, I was living here. They know me here. They've seen my, they knew I was killing Christians, and now I'm saved. I think this is a great place to share my testimony. But God says, actually, they're not going to listen to you there, so you got to go. you got to actually go home. Interesting. Interesting. Sometimes it's a lot easier to share Christ with people. Well, well they understand, understand my testimony. They, they, they know where I've been, but they're not listening to you. They're, you don't have an audience with them because God has a different plan for you. And maybe his first plan for you is to go home. Talk to your mom. Talk to your dad. Talk to your grandparents. Talk to your kids. Maybe you got saved at an older age in your 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s. And you've got grown kids and their families. Hey, maybe you need to go spend some time at home. Paul will spend some estimate maybe eight years in his home city. Just growing in the Lord, learning from his word, steeping himself in Christ and sharing, sharing Christ there in his home city. You know, we have this mentality that, that we really haven't done anything until we've gone to Ethiopia or gone to Uganda or gone to Kathmandu, Nepal, or gone somewhere else. Sometimes the best place for you to share Christ is right in your own home and right in your own home city, right here in Fluvanna County. 
if you can't share Christ in Fluvanna, then why would it be easier to share? Well, nobody knows me there. Yeah, I understand. I understand. They brought him to Caesarea and sent him out again. He's on the run. We won't see him resurface again until chapter 11. Uh, so we'll pick his story up there, verse 31, and we'll close with this. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking, notice this, in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And you just kind of go, ah, there's peace. And and life is kind of like that. You go through periods of confusion, periods of intenseness, periods of difficulty, but it's not going to be like that forever. God took the most avid predator and he turned him into the most zealous preacher. He took the problem in their lives, the life of the church, not just only removed it, he didn't just remove Saul, but he actually put the biggest problem on their side as a benefit. And you think God can't help your situation. And because he was now out of the picture, he'd gone back up. Now there's a time of peace. And notice what they did in the time of peace. They didn't relax and get comfy and get complacent. They used that time of peace, look what it says, to walk in the fear of the Lord. The word walk means to order your life. To order your life. What are the things that order your life? How is your life ordered? Job first, you know, recreation second, family third. I don't know what, and why have you established that order? But to walk in the fear of the Lord is to have him first and then let him give you, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else falls into place after that. Are you walking in the fear of the Lord? Is the Lord ordering your life? And if you do that, you get the next part and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. When you walk in the fear of the Lord, you will also have the coming alongside of the Holy Spirit. One final note, and we'll close. When my kids were in high school, they had to write papers. They're still in college, but they had to write papers. And sometimes they'd get frustrated and discouraged. And, oh, I'm just, and I would have to come alongside and say, okay, calm down. Let's just, okay, let me help you outline this. And let's do it. We're going to do it together. That's what the word comfort means, to come alongside to help. And that's what the Spirit of God will do in your life. When you're walking in fear of the Lord, the Spirit of God comes alongside to say, hey, Steve, I, I know you're nervous about where the church is going. I know you're nervous about pastoring a growing church and making sure people know each other and all the changes in in the life of the church. I know you're nervous about that, but look, I'm going to come alongside of you and we'll do it together. I say, thank you, Lord. That's comforting. Do you see the connection? What is it that you're going through in your life? And you say, Lord, this is hard and this is difficulty and this is tricky and we've never been here before. If you're walking in the fear of the Lord, Spirit of God, come alongside you and say, hey, Jerry, let's do it together. Hey, I can help you with this. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you um, had a lot to say to us this morning. I pray that it was you speaking and um, that we would not get the glory for anything, that always we would be uh, humbling ourselves, Lord, and, and if necessary, you would humble us so that you can get the glory. Lord, I pray we would do what Paul said and we would boast in our infirmities. How weird that would be for us, Lord, to boast about our weaknesses so you could get the glory. Lord, there's nothing in our lives that you haven't done for us. Everything is of you. In our flesh dwells no good thing. Just you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.